Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Nick Scott at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Good morning. Welcome. And my welcome to you all. And uh, we start a new series today. Welcome to a new series, a new month, August. Goodness. New series which we've, as you can see, called The Surrendered Life. And the uh, focus of this first message is uh, the road of suffering. Uh, my hope, uh, as someone rude, quite rudely pointed out earlier in the earlier service, that uh, this message is not a part of your suffering. You're not suffering through it. But um, my hope is really to be able to shed some light on what really is quite a difficult subject. And, um, uh, you know, even as I prepared this week, I came to the troubling conclusion that really I don't have as full an understanding of this subject as perhaps I would like or... Uh, that would be ideal as one teaching. You know, you hope that uh, someone who's teaching knows something of what they're talking about. Um, well, I'm very mindful that many of you have endured far more suffering than I have. And some of you, even now, are in the midst of terrible suffering that is outside of my experience. And um, I, I know that because I've journeyed with some of you. I don't know all of you, but I've journeyed with some of you through difficult times. And for some, I know. The suffering is continuing on, and that's the nature of some forms of suffering, isn't it? That uh, you know, the suffering of grief, uh, the suffering of loss, the suffering of uh, broken relationships, disappointment. There are uh, there are ongoing and enduring aspects of that suffering. It's not all sort of resolved in an instant disappointment with God. And so, uh, this morning, my prayer, I guess, really, as a fellow traveller, a fellow student, a fellow disciple, uh, is that together. The Lord will give us insight and revelation. That's what we need, isn't it? Sometimes revelation about things that we don't understand. And uh, reminded in uh, Psalm 119, 105, you know that verse? Uh, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So we look into the word today. We don't just learn from experience. We look into the word of God as, uh, as our teacher. I do love this graphic, the um, surrendered life I... Uh, it's just a great reminder to us, I think, that uh, life with the Lord can seem a little precarious and uncertain at times, and uh, the future can look a little bit dark. You know, I love the way that, you know, because it goes into the forest there, and you think, wow, I wonder what, uh, what um, terrible things might lie ahead. <laughs> but life can be like that. It can look a bit dark in the future. We don't know what's to come, but, uh, but God holds our future. Sounds like a cliche, but it's the truth. God holds our future in his hands and we can trust him. And whatever we go through in this life, we are, as we put our trust in God, we are eternally safe. We have eternal security in our eternal salvation because of what the Lord has done for us. So uh, let me just pray one more time as we just come to this word. And Lord, we just ask you... uh, in light of the, uh, the, that scripture about light, and even some of the things we've sung this morning, that you, uh, you bring light into the darkness. We pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the revelation of your word, that we would experience something of your light shining on our circumstances and on our minds. There'd be a renewing of our minds and our understanding even today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are certain verses of Scripture 
that, uh, that we love to focus on and that we memorise. Some of them we've learned in Sunday school. Uh, John 10.10 10 is one such verse that I imagine many of us have learned somewhere along the way. Uh, the words of Jesus which say, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Have it in abundance. It's life that, uh, that overflows. And many of us love that verse. We say, yes, Lord, that's what we want. Thank you. Abundance. Abundance of life. Abundance of your love flowing into our lives. Abundance of joy. Abundance of the experience of good things. You know, Christian life at its best. Actually, that whole uh, idea of abundance is the same word that's used in Luke 9 about the feeding of the multitude. There was an abundance of bread left over. It was actually was 12 baskets, to be precise. And it was uh, in that whole uh, miraculous event, this was uh, demonstrative and illustrative of the abundant provision of God. It's part of what Jesus was doing in that miracle, demonstrating that. Hey, people, the, the, the provision of God is abundant. There's this abundance of life of provision. It's the same word used in Romans 5.15, where it says, how much more does God's grace overflow? Again, same word, abound. How much more does God's grace overflow? And again, we would say, yes, Lord, that's what we want, an overflow, an abundance of your grace. And all those things are promised uh, in the word of God. And so we claim them, quite rightly, we claim them with great enthusiasm. Well, let me take you to another verse you probably haven't memorised or learned in Sunday school. It's another verse about abundance. It's 2 Corinthians 1.5, which says this. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, just let that sink in for a moment. Oh. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. An abundance of suffering. And maybe we're not quite so enthusiastic about that kind of abundance. And yet I'd suggest to you that the, the fullness of life, the abundance of life that Jesus offers is inclusive of suffering. And according to this verse, it's abundant suffering. Sharing abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. Now, uh, in the same verse, we see there's also an abundance of comfort that comes from the Lord. We're pleased about that, although most of us would prefer to avoid the suffering if we could and just jump straight to the comfort. We want that abounding comfort. Not so sure about the abounding sufferings. Well, in John 6, uh, there was an occasion when Jesus' followers said, this is, this is hard teaching. Jesus was talking about something else at the time, but uh, they said, this is hard teaching. And verse 66 says that from that time on, Many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. And I suspect that was a repeated pattern actually, not just a one-off occasion, but a repeated pattern through Jesus' ministry. And actually it's a pattern that continues today because people go through suffering of various kinds and in the midst of their suffering they pray fervently for relief and for an end to the suffering. And sometimes we know those prayers are answered in wonderful ways and we hear those stories. They're the testimonies that make it to the testimony books. 
Stories about wonderful healing, wonderful deliverance, wonderful restoration. We read those stories, we're greatly encouraged. But we all know that at other times, the suffering remains or it gets worse. And we pray fervently, but things just go from bad to worse. And so understandably, people lose heart in those circumstances. They lose faith. In some cases, they walk away from God altogether. Blow this whole religion thing. Blow this whole prayer thing. Blow this whole church thing. It doesn't work. I've tried it. And my suffering just continues on. And so, for some of these people, their conclusion is, well, there is no God. Or if there is a God, if God does exist, well, he obviously doesn't love me. He obviously doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about my circumstances. Well, he does, actually. He does, intimately. Enough to enter into that suffering himself. But there's a theology you may well hear in some churches, not this one, but it's a theology that goes like this. If God loves me, then he will give me an easy, comfortable, prosperous, pain-free life and he'll take away my suffering. There might be a partial truth in that, but I want to suggest that Jesus has a, a, a different, slightly less palatable message and one which brought about that John 666 response I would believe on more than one occasion. And so we have a reading today. It's a good summary of Jesus' teaching on this. And uh, Heather is going to read that for us. Matthew 16, 21 to 27. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Thanks, Heather. Amen. You say amen to that? Denying yourself, taking the cross. Is there a loud amen? <laughs> Well, this is probably the first time that Jesus um, has spoken so clearly about his own sufferings to come. He's made other, if you look earlier in the Gospels, he has made other allusions to that suffering. But it's here in Matthew 16, 21 that he really uh, spells it out. And 
interestingly, his disciples believed that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. The problem was that their preconceptions about the Messiah, their, uh, their assumptions, their expectations about the way that God would work and would do things, did not allow for a suffering servant. There was no room in their thinking for a God who would suffer. Totally outside their thinking. A God who would suffer. And so they uh, envisaged, when they envisaged the Messiah coming and they expected this Messiah to come, they believed Jesus was the one, uh, but they saw that playing out very differently and much more triumphantly, much more victoriously. Someone they could kind of jump on board with and, and sort of run ahead in victory. Uh, many Christians today face the same challenge and um, what often happens, I believe, is that they have no real theology of suffering. They've been fed this other stuff. They have no theology of suffering and so when it comes their way, their, their faith is then shattered. And yet, if we rightly understand, um, in particular, a, uh, a series of verses like Isaiah 40 to 55, chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah, I encourage you to read them sometime, there we have a whole section of scripture that describes this one who is the suffering servant. And the example you'd be familiar with, Isaiah 53, verse 3, uh, which we put up there for you, which says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Well, how would you like that on your headstone after you die? <laughs> Here lies Nick Scott. He was despised and rejected him and rejected. Everyone hated him. Rest in peace. Well, who is, who is that about? Who is that about? Who is this man, this one who's described as a man of sorrows? That's the description of your life. You're a person who's familiar with suffering. Just one thing after another. Just bad things happen. You're familiar with suffering. Who is this man? Well, many of us would say, well, that's about Jesus, the Messiah. He, uh, he's the suffering servant spoken about in Isaiah 40 to 55, and we'd be right. But as with a lot of Old Testament prophecy, there's a future application, but there's also an immediate application in the original context. And so in Isaiah 40 to 55, the immediate application is that the suffering servant actually is Israel. It's all about Israel, God's people, who silently endured unimaginable suffering at the hands of of all of the surrounding oppressive nations, which you'll know if you understand and read your Old Testament history. you read about that. But it was suffering always with a view to future redemption that the Lord would bring to them with the coming of this one who would be called the Messiah. And so that was the original application around about 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus was born, when Isaiah lived and, and wrote these words. It was about Israel. The future application, and also the most important, we now understand, was also to Jesus, the promised Messiah. And so Jesus was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was the one, as it says in Isaiah 53, who would carry our sorrows. He was the one who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. We're familiar with those words. And they're all descriptions of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So uh, we would say, yes, Jesus is that suffering servant. And surely then uh, we would also agree that Jesus understood that. He knew the scriptures. He knew the grand plan of God and he knew his place in it. He knew how to interpret the scrolls of Isaiah 40 to 55. That's why in Matthew 16, 21, he explains that he must go to Jerusalem. He says, I must do it. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be killed. His words have this sense of urgency and necessity about them. Peter and the disciples, this is what must happen. This is what will happen. I'm just letting you know. It is necessary for these things to take place. And we might well ask the question, well, but why? Why did Jesus have to suffer? Um, There's an English scholar named Michael Green who answers this very well. Uh, Listen as I read to you his quote. He says, why? Because how else could he empathise with poor, suffering humanity? How else could he understand what his followers and indeed all humankind have to go through? How else could he enter into the pain of the world? How could he get to the root of the evil in the world, which lies even below the pain? How could he overcome the deadly disease of human sin and cosmic disorder? How? Only by taking upon himself all the assaults of evil, allowing them to crush him, and at his father's bidding, being raised to a new dimension of life. Well, poor old Peter doesn't have any understanding of that. Probably we don't really either in many ways. Uh, But Peter's very upset at Jesus suggesting these things that are going to happen to himself. And he uses very strong language to Jesus. No way, Lord. Not on my watch. Nope. This is not going to happen. I will not allow this to happen. You know, interestingly, Peter, he confesses that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. And then he speaks in a way that implies that he knows more than, than God's will, than Jesus himself. And Jesus immediately discerns that even through Peter, even though Peter means well, there's a familiar flavour of satanic influence in his words. And if we go back to the temptation of Jesus in the desert by Satan, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 4, 8 and 9, we read this. Uh, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. See, what Satan offers Jesus in the desert is kingship without suffering. Kingship without suffering. And here again, he makes essentially the same offer to Jesus, this time unwittingly through Peter. And Satan makes the same offer actually loudly and clearly to us in our culture. This, uh, this offer comes from Satan himself. You don't need God. I will give you kingship without suffering. I'll give you financial prosperity, financial success. I'll give you luxurious comfort without the suffering. Actually... It's an offer that he can uh, partly fulfill if you bow down to him. He won't fulfill it completely, of course. We need to make sure that in our determined avoidance of suffering of any kind, we're not standing in the way of something that has divine purpose 
Often there's divine purpose in suffering that we fail to understand. See, there's a glorious future ahead of all of us who put our faith in the Lord, described in Revelation 21, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Another one of those verses we love to quote and we love to memorise. A time ahead, and, we, and rightly so, there's a time ahead for all of us that will be free from suffering completely. The problem is we want the glorious future to be our reality now. So typically as followers of Jesus, we're very slow and very reluctant to accept the necessity of sacrifice and the necessity, that must, of suffering even in our own lives. You know, Jesus says those who seek to have life on their own terms will lose it. Those who seek to have life on Satan's terms with the promise of wealth and prosperity and luxury and just all good and nothing bad, that promise. Those who choose life on that, to live their life on those terms, they'll lose it, according to Jesus. But those who are prepared to sacrifice even their own lives will find it. It's all the stuff he talks about in Matthew of the narrow gate and the broad road. And the narrow gate leads to life. And the broad road leads to destruction. Few will find it. So the prophetic image of the suffering servant of Isaiah 40 to 55 has that immediate application for Israel. It's about Israel, yes. It has a future application to the person of Jesus, the suffering servant. We will say yes to that. But then there's a further application of this prophetic writing and that is to us. There's a sense in which We as the church are collectively the suffering servant. We are the suffering servant. Paul says to the Philippian believers, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, a suffering servant, That's the attitude of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as that. Taking on the nature of a servant. Very next chapter, uh, Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, and listen to this, and participation in his sufferings. That's what I want, says Paul. Extraordinary. Participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And uh, just to reinforce the truth, he says a similar thing to the Roman church. He says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Hallelujah. That's what we want. There's not a full stop at the end of that sentence. There's a comma. We are co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There's a cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's a price to be paid. There's an entering into the sufferings of Christ. There's a sharing of those sufferings, a participation in those sufferings, which is an integral part of what it means to be in Christ. We are in Christ. That's a phrase that's used so many times through the New Testament writings, and we would say it a lot in, this, in, in our church family here. We are in Christ. Hallelujah. What a great thing. <laughs> it is a great thing. This is part of what it means to be in Christ.
And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, actually. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. You know, as we clothe ourselves with Christ, we're putting on the clothing of the suffering servant. That's part of what it means. Part of the deal. Part of what it means to live a truly surrendered life. It's living a life that says, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Not what I want. If you pray that prayer, that's not important. Not what I want, but what, what you want for me. That's what's important. What's important is not what happens to me, Lord, but what's important is that my life is fully surrendered to you and to your will. See, when Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, that's what he meant. He would bring us all, actually, to that Garden of Gethsemane experience of living a life that says, not my will, but yours be done. And we know for first century Christians that meant economic and social persecution. Some even faced death. We know in many parts of the world today that's an ongoing reality for Christians who... Uh, suffer terribly severe persecution and even death for the sake of their faith. But in countries like Australia, where Christianity is still tolerated, still, we need to make sure that we don't become complacent. We need to understand that to live as Jesus did involves sacrifice. We are to live as servants, as those whose calling in life and whose role in life is to serve other people, to give up our own rights, focus less on our rights, more on our responsibilities as followers of Jesus. Servants don't have too many rights, especially back in that culture in that day. They don't have any rights at all. We'll take on the nature of a servant. That's what Jesus did. To live a surrendered life means to to resist pressure to conform to the ways of the world, pressures of materialism and you know, the endless pursuit of pleasure and self-gratification. Have it now, pay later, you know, all of those sorts of things. Resist all of that. Deny yourself, actually, says Jesus. Not indulge yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Well, anyone in that culture knew what that meant. Taking up your cross was a one-way journey to death. Sometimes we sing it. The cross before me the world behind me. No turning back. I will follow Jesus. See, there's a resoluteness about those words in the, the Christian life. Many of us who, many of you who've lived through suffering will understand this better than I, that the Christian life requires some resilience and some firm resolve And so let me encourage you today in the face of suffering of various kinds and we understand too that some suffering is self-inflicted, you know. We make stupid decisions and there's suffering that results from our own stupid decisions. There's other suffering that's inflicted by the brokenness of humanity. There's suffering that's inflicted at the hand of the evil one. 
Whatever the case, in the face of various kinds of suffering, don't let that suffering guide your life. Don't let that suffering define you or shape you. Don't let suffering throw you off your game. Don't let your suffering distract you from your focus on Jesus. And so in the midst of suffering, let me urge you even this morning to hold on to the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word is that God is good. Your life might suck at the moment, but God is good and God is faithful. God does love and care for you and in ways that perhaps you can't fully see or comprehend, God is with you in your suffering. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Well, there's a joy set before us in the midst of suffering. You can't always see the joy. You can't always see. Sometimes it's all a bit dark ahead. But by faith we hold on to and reclaim that promise that there is a joy, there is a day coming where there will be no more grief, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more loss. But pure joy. It's what awaits us all. In the meantime, we learn and we struggle to learn what it means to be those who participate in the sufferings of Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word. Whether we, whether we like it or not, we thank you. And we sense something of a, um, a gravity about this word today as we grapple in our minds with things that are difficult for us to understand, some of the big questions of life. But again, as we began, I would pray once again that you would bring your revelation, that you would shine your light onto the darkness of our circumstances, onto the darkness of our understanding. Shine your light, we pray, onto the ignorance of our minds as we allow our minds to be transformed, that a renewing of mind might take place as we submit ourselves to you and uh, seek to live out the surrendered life in a way that affects our current reality and our day-to-day walk with you. So we submit ourselves to you afresh and uh, ask that you reveal yourself to us afresh. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.